Well, I want to welcome you guys here and those of you online live streaming. Uh, we're going to continue our service here Sunday morning. This is our first Sunday of March, so afterwards we're going to be doing... So afterwards, after the sermon, we're going to be having communion, and we're going to have uh, everybody joining in on that. But I want to welcome you guys. We're going to continue on with regard to the seven earmarks of a healthy church, and we're on earmark seven, okay? This sermon has nothing to do with ears, if you are wondering, though today you may hear about something like that. Uh, we are looking for what is it that makes a healthy church, the church in America, in some ways, is in crisis mode, and as usual, from generation to generation, there is something in any culture that will seek to pull or push the church off-center. Instead of pursuing Jesus, they're pursuing other things, and so we're looking, what is it, when we're looking at a church, what is it that characterizes a healthy church? We've looked at their immersing into the Word of God and in prayer and worship. We've looked at this concept of making disciples unity. And we looked at unity last week and this whole idea that by us being brought to complete unity by Jesus himself, that this will impact the world knowing that the Father sent the Son and that the Father loves them. So if we're, if we're praying for a revival, for awakening, for a spreading of the word throughout this world, for a global awakening, then church, this is so utterly important. You cannot see global revival apart from unity in the body of Christ. That was Jesus' high priestly prayer. But I want to look at something that's kind of a springboard or rather that feeds into this concept of unity Today. So let me begin with this. You may remember, I think it was about two weeks ago, I, I went to bed on a Friday night and I was in pain. <laughs> Initially in the uh, early part of the evening, my back started to ache and I thought maybe I did something while I was working, tweaked my back muscle and it, the pain kind of come and went and now there was a pain right here and I started feeling nauseous and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I've gotten food poisoning. Well, this went on the whole next day into Sunday morning, and I realized I, I need to give my good buddy, Francis Chan, a call and ask if he could come and preach in my stead. So when I did that, he was gracious enough to say yes, okay? So, okay, no, I didn't call him either, but he did come. Praise God for the internet, right? And so he, he kind of filled in for me. Can I just tell you that during that almost 20, uh, 48 hours, 36 to 48, that at points, the pain and the nausea were so debilitating, it was hard for me to communicate with anyone. And, and when you go through pain, it is hard for you to think outside of your little world, your little box, your little focus, because your focus is my pain. And honestly, no lie, church, every minute it got to a point, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to make it to the next minute. I'm going to make it to make it to the next minute. I'm going to make it to the next minute. And hopefully I'm going to encounter a minute, right, in which there's no pain, there's no nausea, I'm not vomiting, and praise God. But it, it drug on, and I'm thinking, I need to go to the emergency room. And even if they don't find out exactly what it is, at least they'll give me something for the pain and the nausea, right? Well, they did find out what it was. It was a kidney stone. But my point is simply this, that when we go through pain, our focus turns inward. It is inevitable. 
when my wife would ask me questions, I, I, I would have to wait almost a minute and, and try to just come out of this and, and respond to her. Um, it was so hard. But you know what? Some of us, and, and I am so impressed by some of you, this is your daily life, physical pain. And, and amazingly, you're able to think beyond your present needs and your pain to other people's needs. That so impresses me. But you see, our pain that most of us go through isn't always physical pain. Many times, it's this pain, this agony, this heartache. That, honestly, church, we just we need healing from. We need a reprieve from. There are points in which we are kneeling beside our bed and we're literally crying because of the heartache that we're experiencing. God, please take this from me. Help me endure this trial, this pain, this heartache. And God, I believe, wants to bring healing to your heart. But in this season, and we are trusting it is a season, church, we are in a similar season, a season of pain and heartache. And we're just saying, God, please just help us get through this season. And we feel like a family that's being pulled in different directions, and it hurts. This past May... My youngest child, my son Jim, got married to a wonderful young lady. They, but when they got married, they moved out to Denver, Colorado. She's pregnant, and I'm going to be a granddad for the fourth time, and my grandbaby will be out in Denver, Colorado. Is that Jim's fault? Should I be angry at Jim? It's not fair for you to move away. Well, of course not. This is, I trained my son to be able to embrace the things of the world, present Christ, and live for Jesus wherever God calls him. But does it hurt? Can I be honest with you, church? Yeah. He's my first child that has moved away from home. And I miss him. My wife misses all of us. We miss him. What a joy when they were able to join us at the end of January over a weekend. Um, they just kind of took a, like a second honeymoon break, and they went to a resort in Sebastian, Florida, I think it was, Sebastian Inlet, I think that was where, and staying in a resort, and the Lord I see is blessing them, and we had a chance to get together with them several times while, while they were here before they went to Sebastian, and it was such a joy, but I miss my son, and it's a heartache, it's a pain, an ache in my heart. Is it wrong that he went to Denver, Colorado? Of course not. If any of my children moved away, I would probably cry too. But that's part of life. And that's where we're kind of at as a church in this pulling, and it hurts. And we're in this season, and church, it is a season. A season. See, seasons... Well, okay, Florida, it seems as if Florida has two seasons, um, not four. I grew up with four. I love four seasons. Uh, San Diego kind of experiences just one season. You know, it, it's like almost the same temperature year-round. We visited there, loved it. Not necessarily we want to live there. Glad God called us here, but I miss my four seasons. But you see, seasons are four seasons. They're for a short time, and we move through them. Church, we're going to move through this. 
And I'm taking some time because I want to tell you that what I'm preaching on this morning, you guys excel in. But if we're not careful, we can get caught up in this season of pain and we will not excel in it. What I want to preach on is this concept of serving, this concept of looking beyond ourselves, empowered by the Spirit, by our spiritual gifts, and being filled with the Spirit, moving in those gifts to minister and serve others, even in the midst of pain at times. That's just where we are. And, and if it's not now, church, it, will, it might be next year, the year after. Jesus never promised us that there will be no pain. He never promised us that you'll only see rainbows. Because if you just, if you look outside and you see a rainbow, it is generally because it was overcast and it just rained. And those rains come and the overcast skies come and they're hard. I remember years and years ago, as I've been connected with HNI Harvest Network International, a church was made available in Duluth, Minnesota, where apparently here in Florida, it's like 270 days of sunshine a year, 270 days a year, it's just totally overcast there. And I, it, it would take a miracle of God to call me there. I remember just thinking that. And so I said, thank you, but no thank you, right? And, and it can feel as if our season is 270 days of nothing but cloudy skies. Jesus brings us through that. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. In this season, God is going to be in this process of healing you. I'm actually going to be preaching through a series of how we can actually do that in ministering through a season of pain. Because when I look at the book of Acts, I see that. There is an explosion in the church of pain and we're going to step back and we're going to see how did the church respond. Because how they responded, we will need to as well. Well, here's the first thing. It's, it's, the, it's kind of like the first step in the next series, but it's really the last step in the seven-year marks of a healthy church. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Because right today, we are actually going to be looking at the diversity in the body of Christ. Last week, we looked at the unity. This week, we're going to look at the diversity. But what we're going to see here, church, is something so amazing that we need diversity in the body of Christ in order to reach unity. What? Exactly. If we do not have diversity and we're not held together because of that diversity, we will never be unified. And let me say this, we will never grow. You will never grow. Praise God for your spouse who is so different than you. So everything about them is different. Praise God because that's what you need. Praise God for that friend who is so different than you and at times irritates you because those differences that kind of irritate you, you need. I mean, I'm not saying you need the irritation, you need the difference. And we're going to look at that difference. Un remember what I said last week, unity. Unity is when we make a choice to focus on where we're similar. Koinonia, where we have our 
commonness, our sharedness. In the faith, in Christ Jesus, there is this vast commonness and inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. But there is a diversity and there is differences. So I'm going to word it this way. All right, okay. We focus on our similarities. We celebrate our differences. Okay? We focus on our similarities because that's what brings us together, that commonness, that koinonia. But we celebrate our differences. And if, we're not in, if it's not customary for you to do that and rejoice in how different people are than you, then you need to do this. And we're going to see this as it comes out to us from the scriptures. <coughs> because as we see here, verses 1 through 6 is all about unity. Keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of what, church? Peace, help me out. Keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And in verse 7, we see this word, but. So there's this contrast. He now shifts away from this concept of unity to the concept of diversity and its utter necessity in our lives, in the body of Christ. So let's pick up with verse 7. But to each one of us, each one of us, there is no one who is excluded, church. To each of you, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, he who ascended on high has led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Look at verse 11. It was he. It was Jesus Christ. It was this one who ascended and who has filled the entire universe. He, Jesus Christ, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And allow me to word it this way in view of how the Greek reads, and some to be pastor teachers. We're looking at than a fourfold type of ministry that Christ has given as gifts to the church. Why? To prepare or to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Church, listen to this. Then... Mm. then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful schemings. There are those people in the church like this. Maybe not in this church, I hope not. But in the church globally, they're there. Instead, speaking the truth in love we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each part does its work. We focus on our similarities, on our sharedness. 
but we celebrate our differences. Why? Because Christ, it says here, by his grace, gave us those differences. He gave them to us. Spiritual gifts. See, you are absolutely unique. I've heard it said, when God made you, he broke the mold. You see, when God made me, he broke the mold and said, there's only one micro. I'm just kidding. But the truth is, God made each of us with our different personalities, with our spiritual giftings and our talents, and they are different with your life experiences, with your maturity. Some of you may be gifted similar to me, but because of your maturity in certain areas in which you excel me, you minister in a different way than I do, than I can. And so Jesus, it says, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Now, let me just say that he starts off with the gifts of the fourfold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And I've heard it this way. The reason, one of the reasons why Jesus hyphenated that term, or Paul did, is pastor teachers, is because a pastor must be able to teach well, and a teacher must have a heart to pastor well. And, and I've, I, I, I've seen those who may be gifted in teaching, but they don't have a heart for people. Can I be honest? I'm not convinced that maybe they should be teaching. A teacher must have a heart for the people. So Jesus gave these gifts to the people of God, to his bride, to his church, his body. And the reason why he did this is to be able to equip them, to be able to prepare them so that they then are able to grow up. And in their growing up, they are now able to minister to one another. So, see, it's my job as your equipment manager to teach you how to use the equipment, okay? So now it's your job and not mine to build one another up. I help you so that you can help one another. And I'm going to get at the very end, I'm going to get really practical with this as far as how we're called, how you can do this. But you are, you have a different gift set I'm sure it's more than just one gift. It's probably a couple of gifts. And there are times in which one day you move in one gift and another you move in another. It is not like a gift that you have and you only have that gift and no others. You will probably excel in one or two, but God at moments will give you other gifts. <clears throat> and so I'm just going to encourage you. God does not, for example, God does not necessarily move through me in the gift of healing. But there have been times in which God has just totally blown me away in which right there before me, God healed somebody and testified to it and their spouse testified to it the next day. And I'm just like, wow, thank you, Lord. Jesus, what you did. So God can use you maybe generally in, in certain gifts, but allow him to use you however he wants. Any day, any opportunity. Okay? So... <laughs> this diversity is given so that we will actually build one another up until, do you see that in the beginning? First, in my Bible, first word in verse 13, until we all reach unity. Diversity that's given 
to help bring about this unity that Paul spoke about in the first six verses. How are you going to be unified? By being different. It's an oxymoron. It's a paradox. It's true. The only way for us to be unified is to be different. Does that make sense to you? Because see, it doesn't to me. But in the mind of God, it does. And he is able to work that out practically in your life. We're going to look at that. But what are we unified in? Is it that we're all theologically correct and we all have the same teaching? We all have the same millennial view? We all have the same baptism view? We all have the same uh, government view? Uh, on and on and on. You can go through all the theology. You, uh, are we all supposed to be Calvinists or are we all supposed to be Arminians or are we all supposed to be somewhere in the middle and those two extremes just need to get their act together? Is that what we're called to? Now, we're called to unity in the faith. Listen, the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And then become mature. The faith has to do with the gospel. It is relational in nature. It is not just facts. It is not just a creed. It is this faith that we live by that has ushered us into his kingdom that we live by every single day. That is the faith. It's got the definite article with it. It's not just faith, it's the faith. There's only one faith. Muslims do not have the faith. Hindus do not have the faith. Cults do not have the faith. The faith is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is this relationship with him. That's the faith. We're also supposed to be unified in the knowledge of the Son of God. Is he talking about doctrinal unity here? The, the, the only doctrinal unity that Paul is getting at is actually found, well, it's kind of found in both of them, but it's actually found in the first one. It's the gospel. He is not saying that we must be unified on all these doctrinal points. See, the knowledge of the Son of God. If you were to look at this, especially Peter in the second Peter, throughout his letter, he talks about this knowledge of Jesus Christ that is completely relational. It is not based on, excuse me, it is based on facts in the gospel, but it is heart-driven, it is faith-infused, it is relational, and it is experiential. He uses the Greek word epignosis. Epignosis means knowledge. And it can be used in a variety of ways. It can be used for knowledge of facts or knowledge like knowing Jesus Christ. Depart from you, workers of iniquity, I never knew you. However, this Greek word epignosis or epignosis as they say it, with that little preposition, it means this sense of full knowledge. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall know. That's the verb form of epignosis. Then we shall know fully as we are fully known. Does that mean we're going to be omniscient? No. I mean, the angels aren't omniscient. We're not going to become omniscient. There's only one person or being that will ever be omniscient, and that is God himself. This knowledge is a relational, this knowledge of Jesus Christ, this we will know him, as he fully knows us, we will be in this intimate, complete, perfect union and relationship with Jesus. So this 
knowledge of Jesus Christ that Paul's getting at here in Ephesians 4 is relational knowledge. This is the unity that we are called to, church. Not just with Jesus himself, the Son of God, but with one another. And growing to become mature. So he, he lands on this word mature, and it's actually this word, the, the complete man. And that's just uh, an idiom for maturity. But notice how he contrasts it in the very next verse. Look at that very next verse. Then you will no longer be what? Babies. You'll no longer be infants. I can remember taking my kids for the very first time to the beach. They got sand, yes, all in their diaper. It was a mess, but they had so much fun. And when you, when you take them out to the ocean, you don't take them out into the deep water unless you're really holding them well, right? And so they could stand, and when they could, we w- I would set them down into the water, and I would just kind of, I'd be right there, but eventually the wave would come in and, boop, they would fall down. And sometimes the water would pull out and, whoop, they would fall this way. And, you know, I'm right there. I'm going to catch them. But that's the nature of infants. Their legs are unstable. They fall down easily by small waves. Now, I've never seen my kids go out in our backyard on a blustery day and get knocked over by the wind, but it can happen. And so he's talking about these immature people are those that kind of get tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, false teaching but you're not called to be that way. You're called to be the mature man. You're called to be mature in Christ. And so here's my point. How does that happen? How are you called to be mature? Because this is important for unity. This is important because it's the end goal of our diversity. You've been given different spiritual gifts to what end? To help bring others to maturity. See, that's not just my job. In my preaching, I hope that helps you come to a level of maturity in Christ, but your job is to do that too. You're helping me out. We're a team. I'm I'm kind of the coach. I don't go to the plate. I help the pitcher. I help the catcher. I help the batters and first base and outfielders and so on. My job is to help you guys do so well. So our goal is that if we are doing our job, we are bringing one another to maturity. How? How how are we not like infants, blown here and there, tossed back and forth? Here's how it is. We speak the truth in love. So it's my job to give you truth. And with that truth, that's how you're going to build one another up. You're going to feed one another truth. Some of you do such an amazing job as as God takes that truth and applies it to your life. And in your life circumstances, broken as you are, now receiving healing, you minister from that brokenness and now that healing and that refining and that refreshing and you minister to others and it is powerful. Church, you are amazing. Be, Be careful though. Because if you get caught up in any season of pain, 
You'll take your eyes off of that and building others up, and it will become all about you. And you will become unable to minister. You will not grow up into him who is the head. And you will not be able to help others, including me, grow. Church, it's your job to help me grow. Yes, it is. Don't look at me that way. It's your job to help me grow. It's my job to help you, but you help me grow. Some of the things that you guys have said, the words of knowledge, prophetic words, just insights in the scripture have blown me away and have so ministered to me. Much of the time we experience it as one of the worship leaders up here. I mean, Meredith is the worship leader, but he allows that freedom for ministry. And those truths that you share are so profound, church, because they're rooted in truth. They have touched you experientially, and you have, you have experienced Jesus in this knowledge of the Son of God, and you minister from that. You're amazing. You truly are. Thank you, church, for being the church. I want us to look at verse 16. It says, from him, the whole body, <coughs> excuse me, the whole body joined and held together grows and builds itself up in love. There's are two different Greek words there. The first one just simply means that they are joined together. Much as my hands are joined like this, they fit. And some of your translations say fitted. That first word, fitted. Mine says joined, <clears throat> but you are fitted. One fitting the other, much like a puzzle piece. I have something back here. It's not a puzzle. Let me use this. But th this, is, this is the only thing I could find. Our, I couldn't find puzzles in my house, and I have failed to ask my wife, but they're hidden somewhere in our house. I'm sure of it, because we used to have a lot of puzzles. Unless they all got jumbled together, and my wife couldn't sort it out, and so she threw it all away. That's a possibility. But puzzle pieces. When you force puzzle pieces together, you can kind of tell that they don't fit, right? But when they are cut in a way that they fit, they fit beautifully like this. They fit perfectly. The bottom of this fits perfectly in with this. They are joined. They are fitted one with the other. Good fit. This right here, well, they, that fits together pretty well, but they're not interconnected. They can come apart. So the next Greek word talks about that. There's an interconnectedness. Some puzzles uh, advertise that they have interlocking pieces. Now, some pieces, some puzzles have maybe one appendage that's interlocking or two, but two others, because there's generally four sides to a puzzle piece, that are just kind of rounded or smooth. They still fit the next puzzle piece, but they don't interlock. See, this Greek word says they interlock, and it's, it's like this, they they interlock here, and it, it may be even glue, but they're stuck together. They fit so well, they connect with one another. Not just that they're joined, but they're connected. And so you can start putting things together as a result. But if you do this, it's going to come apart. So Paul says, hey, you're not just fitted, you're interconnected. 
And I'm going to suggest to you that we are fitted together because of the needs that you have, and each of us, including myself, have needs, so we have this, but then God has supplied someone over here with this so that they fit. And your need is met by what God has given someone else. And so we need one another. We need one another. But not only are we fitted, but we have made a choice. We are bonded. We have made a choice that in love, even though there's friction, even though I may get upset with you, I have resolved since love covers a multitude of sins, I'm going to get this relationship right. And so we are committed in this bond of unity through the Spirit. We're glued. We're connected. Interlocking pieces. This is the body of Christ. We need one another. The nose needs the mouth, and the mouth needs the nose. Can I tell you a very sad, sad story in my life? One year, I came down with allergies. The allergies have gotten so bad. Here's what happened. I almost cried at this. It was like, because I, I didn't realize it. I'm trying to get some of your sympathies right now if you didn't notice. Yeah, thank you. I feel so much better already. Wow. But I remember someone came over and they had freshly ground cinnamon. And they said, this is so amazing. Mike, smell it. And I, I, I don't smell anything. And they looked at me and they said, no way. And they passed it to my wife and one of my daughters. And they're, wow, dad, you can't smell. I can't smell it. Church, I love coffee. I, I, coffee's amazing. But I can rarely smell the coffee brewing anymore. You know what? Yes. Come on, help me out. Thank you, thank you. Right, okay. It, but you see, my mouth drinks the coffee but it needs my nose to smell it. Did you realize that much of your taste actually comes from smell? So I can only half taste my food, all right? Help me, just one more time, please. Thank you, okay, all right, thank you. But you know what? Not only does the mouth need the nose, but the nose needs the mouth. They need each other. I can remember one time, this is years and years ago, decades ago, D decades ago, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I was a youth leader. And I took our youth group from different church. I went, to a, I went to a teen mania event, and they did something called jello snarfing. Anyone ever here heard of snarfing jello? Okay. So each youth group was supposed to get one representative, not knowing what they were going to do. They just knew you were going to snarf. Whatever that meant, you're going to snarf. We saw bowls of jello up there, so we kind of put two and two together, but still not knowing what's going to happen. And one representative, we sent the most ambitious, outgoing, daring young man in our group, and he went up there, and there were like 20 of them up there. And then they were each handed a straw. You see where I'm going with this? And he said, it is your job to put the straw in your nose and suck up all the jello. Our guy came in second place. I was so proud of him. You snarfed jello so well. And he looked at me and said, Mike, that 
Yes, that was so disgusting. This young man who can do anything and just be bold about it, it grossed him out. He was so glad God gave him a mouth. <laughs> and not just a nose. You see, the nose needs the mouth, and the mouth needs it. We need each other desperately. Now, I hope that little silliness will just help lock in this principle for you, that you need your spouse. No matter the friction between the two of you, you need each other. Not only have you been called and covenanted with one another, you need each other. I need you and you need me. We need one another. Very quickly right now. Two things. I'm just going to give you two things. How you can move in these gifts, obviously empowered by the Spirit. That's why they're called spiritual gifts. You can have a natural gift of teaching. That doesn't mean you have the spiritual gift of teaching. Spiritual gifts of teaching are empowered by the Spirit. And all I can say is, generally, you can tell the difference. When someone is a good teacher and when they are anointed by the Spirit in the spiritual gift of teaching. The Spirit just uses the truth that they say, and it finds its mark in our hearts, encourages us, infuses us with faith. First thing I want to talk about is faith. I'm going to be very quick here. Faith, at its heart, you will find humility. Why? Because faith comes to this point where we recognize I am so completely and utterly dependent upon God completely. That that means 100%. Not, you know what? I kind of need God 75%, but God, I got the rest. I got the 25% here, so I'm good. Nope. Even to do that 25%, I still need Jesus, church, and so do you. So faith humbles itself, has that posture of humility, and says, I can't, but I know a God who can, and I am going to call upon him. That is faith. Faith says, though I can't, I know he can. 1 Corinthians 14.1, it says this. In 1 Corinthians 14.1, you can turn there with me if you want, but it says this. Well, okay. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Faith looks at a need and it says, God... Can you use me to meet that need? And so we eagerly desire a spiritual gift. Whatever is needed for that moment, desiring a spiritual gift to meet that present need. Especially the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is not just foretelling. It's not just looking down the, and, and, and being able to tell someone what the future holds. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that that's actually rare. It happens. But what usually happens is the foretelling. It is taking this deposit of truth that God has given me so that I have now, I'm, I'm becoming mature and I'm not like a, an infant and I am now speaking truth in love, building one another up, okay? That's called foretelling. And so faith seeks to apprehend that which God has in the form of spiritual gifts, especially prophecy, to minister to someone. The Greek word that's used there, eagerly desire, is the Greek word zelao, literally to be zealous for. Eagerly desire, be zealous, 
church for spiritual gifts. Don't just lock into one or two and say, well, that's the only way God can use me. That's not true. He may generally use you that way, but one day he may give you a prophetic word. He may give you the, 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 the leading to lay hands on someone, and God is actually going to heal them through that gift of healing. I mean, can you believe that you would do that one day? But if there is a need, there is this longing, faith, humbled. I need you, God, right now to minister. The second thing I want to encourage you in is follow the way of love. How you're going to minister in that spiritual gift is not an arrogance that, that, that runs contrary to faith, the heart of which is humility, love. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. Talking about all the diversity in the body of Christ, he then concludes, now let me show you the most excellent way. What is that excellent way? Read, verse, read chapter 13. Because it segues right into that. And when he's done chapter 13, the greatest of these is love. Then he says, follow the way of love. Church, I'm going to challenge you. Follow the way of love. Speak the truth in love. Everything done in love. Everything done in love. You may feel inadequate. You may come to a point, you, you see a need and you're just saying, God, this person is in need and my heart is broken. I love this person. By faith, God, help me to be able to minister to this person and I'm going to minister to them in love. Just this past week, Friday night, we were watching a video from Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, it's, it was a simulcast. Um, it was supposed to be at um, Lifeway Church, but they got someone came down with COVID and exposed a number of people in that group that was actually going to put a life group in that church, and so they couldn't do it. So Juliana found out about it and said to the lady, they were, I, I can host it. And, and so <clears throat> we just decided to do that here at the church, and one of the guy's testimonies, let me just say this, for all of them, their persecution was completely unexpected. For all of them, they had no idea how long it was going to last. Can you imagine being thrown? You could be in jail for the rest of your life. If you're 20, how long might that be? See, I'm 60, so for the rest of my life, it's nowhere near as close. But for you, younger than me, that could be a long time. And all of these guys were younger than me. They had no idea. It could be days. It could be weeks, months, years. For some of them, it was years. For many of those in the persecuted church, it is for the rest of their life. But here's what happened. One of the gentlemen found himself at the border of Iran going into Afghanistan, and he was pulled aside. He'd just been there to visit some friends and who were Christians, and now they were falsely accusing him. He found himself in jail. What was it, nine weeks? I think for him it was nine weeks. No idea, though, when he would be getting out. <clears throat> he found himself being brought before a judge, and he was now going to have to defend himself. The charges against him were not true. But when he, so if they weren't true, that he was undermining their government, that he was trying to 
Um, I don't think the, the accusation was proselytizing, but something similar to that. So guess what? If you're him, the last thing you want to do is preach the gospel right there in a courtroom. But that's exactly what he did. And he stood up. And for 30 minutes, church, he preached the gospel. And the judge let him do it. The seeds of the gospel were sown in everybody, everyone there. And suddenly, he realized there is a need here. Now, it wasn't a need amongst the body of Christ. It was a need amongst the lost. And the Spirit of God just came upon him and rose up within him. And he stood up. And before he knew it, he started preaching Jesus for 30 minutes. I am sure that, he, he, and he said this, that he was shaking the whole time he was in the courtroom, not knowing what his destiny would hold. And if he said the wrong thing, it could be life imprisonment. <clears throat> his life was on the chopping block, understand. He, he, he was supposed to die for what he did. False accusations granted. May I tell you what, if God told me, Mike, I want you to stand up and preach the gospel. I would think, Jesus, that is a really, you're my defense counselor, and that's really bad advice. Not here and not now. Maybe another time. Maybe in the seclusion of the home where the judge can't see me, but you're calling me to preach to the judge? What? And that's exactly what he did. And, and I'm just going to tell you, even as he was shaking in his boots, just saying, God, what am I supposed to say? When he stood up, the scripture came to his mind, when you're taken before the Sanhedrin, don't think about what you're going to say. Let me speak through you. And God did. Can you trust him? That's what faith is. That's what love that sees the need. And as those two, faith and love, come together, God is going to use you. He, he is going to delight in using you. And he will use you to no end. Because he's simply looking for vessels to be filled, servants who are willing. That's all he is looking for, even if it means your life. The judge let him go. The judge let him go. He could have sent him to the gallows or to be beheaded. And trust me, you never want to see a beheading. That could have been him. But God said, not today. He stood up. He spoke what God was putting on his heart. And I'm telling you, church, that that kind of faith and love, because he started off his talk simply talking about how really good God was, and then his next subject was how much he loved Muslims, Iranians specifically. And that love didn't die. He still loved God, and he loved those people so that he was willing to lay his life down at that very moment. That's love. What faith? That's what we're being called to. At that moment, I'm not going to say he was a preacher because he wasn't. I forget what his job was. But he wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a pastor. That's not what he did full time. He wasn't a missionary. I mean, he kind of wanted to be, but he was working. That's right. He was working in a hospital. He was working in a hospital in Afghanistan, wanted to visit Iran. 
unexpectedly. Can I just ask you, what would you do if God gave you this type of an opportunity to just speak and let the Spirit of God speak through you? It could be at Chick-fil-A. It could be to your next-door neighbor. It could be to a boss. It could be to your spouse or to your child. But would you allow God in these various gifts that God has given, and even some you've not experienced, could you allow the God who loves to do the impossible do that in your life through you? He can. He wants to. Because his goal is through this diversity to bring us all to complete unity so that the world may know the Father sent the Son so that there will be global awakening. Can you believe this with me, church? This is how God wants to use you. Father, it is so easy for us to focus on our differences and instead of celebrating them, speak critically. To push people who are different away. And I'm just asking you, Father, today that something would rise up within us that would reach out our arms and embrace love. That, Father, even in our own personal differences, we would say, God, how can you use me today? How can you use me in this very instant, in this person's needs? Can I say something? Can I pray a simple prayer? What can I do? And just allow you to lead us? Father, I ask that this would be our heart to be used by you as each part is doing its work, as we are joined and integrally connected with one another, speaking truth in love, building each other up in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God so that we would all become mature, reflecting Jesus, shining Jesus, our first love, that's our goal, God. Don't ever let us shrink back from it. Don't ever let our pain cause us to take steps back and be so comfortable that you no longer use us.